If you're involved with our community Bible experience, I want to encourage you. You're halfway through reading the New Testament. So congratulations. This past week was kind of a rough one, finishing up Paul's letter to the Romans. I mean, that's a thick section of the Bible to get through. But the good news is that it's sort of downhill from here. So just keep going with your daily readings. And if you miss a day or two, please don't give up. It just means you're human. And what did Paul say in Galatians? We're not under law, but under what? Grace. That's right. Grace. So keep going. In the week ahead, we actually cycle back to the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're reading from Matthew chapter 8 this morning, if you want to turn there. It's page 251 in your CBE Bible. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us four different views of Jesus' life and person. And they're not, strictly speaking, biographies. They're, they're more like snapshots of a variety of moments in Jesus' life and ministry. They're eyewitness accounts by those who knew him personally. And they have this way of kind of drawing us into how Jesus interacted with people. We get, we get sucked into the stories in a way that feels like we're right there, right there too, in the crowd or among the disciples. And the beauty of the Gospels is that they don't, they don't just give us information about Christ, they help us to experience his love and his grace right now in our own hearts. Jesus comes alive in you as you see him almost step out of the pages. When it comes to reading the Bible, a lot of people start on page one like the Bible is a novel. They start with Genesis get bogged down in Leviticus, and then pretty much give up. But the Bible is more like a library than a novel. It's actually better to start with the New Testament, and Matthew is the place where most people begin. So since the Bible is the most widely read and distributed book in human history, I think it's safe to say the Gospel of Matthew could be the most widely read piece of literature in all the world. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So you're in good company as you read through Matthew this week. So here we go, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Amen. Thanks be to God. One thing you'll discover in the Gospel of Matthew is how much emphasis he places on the kingdom of God. That's one of his major themes, how Jesus is the king of all kings, the Messiah who is ushering in God's new kingdom on this earth. And so you might wonder, well, why does God need to bring a new kingdom? Didn't God create the whole universe in the first place? Isn't he already king of the universe? And the answer is, well, yes, God is the creator king. He is all-powerful and almighty. And yet for his own reasons, which I certainly don't fully understand, he created this world with a powerful gift called free will. Our part of the universe was given free will, which means we have the real choice. We can choose to love and serve the God who created us, who loves us, who knows us, and how we can live life to the fullest. Or we can choose, we can choose to love God back, or we can choose to go our own way. We have the freedom to say no to our Creator. And that's what we've done. We've sort of stiff-armed God, pushed Him out of the way, 
decided we could live life without him, and that's what the Bible called sin, sort of with a capital S. Our, our rebellion, we, we break away from God's intended will. We, we go our own way, and that choice has consequences. That sin with a capital S spreads out and infects our whole world. It's the ecosystem we live in. If we were fish, it's the ocean in which we swim. It's all around us. We're so much a part of it, we sometimes can't even see it. It's our normal but the world is not the way God wants it to be. We live in a broken world. We see it all around in disease, suffering, hunger, death, in fractured relationships, damaged families, in war and natural disasters, the host of man-made tragedies and senseless shootings and violence towards women and children, and the way people get exploited or used, in chronic injustice, addictions, misunderstanding, frustration, depression illness and loneliness, none of those things are part of God's original plan for this world. So why did God give us free will? Well, I kind of know the textbook answer, but it's not very satisfying when you're standing next to a loved one in a hospital bed. We live in a broken world, and in moments of honesty, we can admit that we are part of that brokenness. Our minds and our hearts have not escaped the ravages of sin. Things are just not right inside our hearts. And so we cry out to God to do something, to, to fix it, to fix us somehow. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that God has done something, that God is doing something. Jesus, fully God, enfleshed as a baby, born of a virgin, becomes the announcer of God's new kingdom, a kingdom where God begins to restore what was lost and repair what was damaged, a kingdom where the king goes to the cross to be the atoning provision for our sin, a king whose sacrifice of grace washes us as white as snow so that we can begin again, a kingdom where our relationship with the king is fully restored, a kingdom that is here but not fully, a, a great reversal has begun but it's not complete and it will only be complete when in God's good timing King Jesus comes a second time to set all things right. He came the first time to win us back win back his rebellious people, but he will come again, and this time in judgment to set all things right by the exercise of his omnipotent power. And no one will be able to re resist his lordship. He will make all things new, new heavens, new earth, a recreation where sin and its damage is no more. In chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives what we now call the Sermon on the Mount probably the most famous passage of the teachings of Jesus. It's a sermon about the kingdom of God, what it's like, how we as his followers are to live while waiting for the kingdom to come in its fullness, how we're supposed to treat others and how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to pray for this kingdom. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are in this middle time where we see glimpses of the kingdom, but the full picture hasn't come into focus. And while we're waiting, we are to start living by the kingdom principles here and now, while this broken kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God sort of collide. There's a structure to Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the anointed king and an intentional design of how he lays out the flow of the story. First, Jesus is king by reason of his paternity. In chapter 1, laying out the genealogy of Jesus' earthly family. And then Jesus is king by reason of prophecy, through the stories of his birth that we associate with Christmas. And then 
the coming of John the Baptist, the last of the great prophets. Then, then Jesus is king by reason of his preaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus preaches about the kingdom. And in chapter 8, Matthew shows us that Jesus is king by reason of his power. That everything Jesus preached will be proven by what he does. His miracles prove that Jesus doesn't teach, just teach principles about the kingdom, but he also has the power and the authority to fulfill those principles. You know, we hear promises every day, especially in this season of electioneering. Uh, political candidates make all kinds of promises, so many promises. Do they ever deliver? Well, don't hold your breath. When Jesus makes a promise, Matthew wants us to know that he has the power to fulfill it. He has the power to make his promises come true. And Jesus makes lots of promises in the Sermon on the Mount. And at least one guy was really listening, this lone leper. Standing alone, back behind the crowd, he heard Jesus' message of the kingdom. And as soon as the crowds come down the mountain, this lone leper, he just makes a beeline for Jesus. And this is the first of Jesus' miracles recorded by Matthew. He, he chooses it purposefully. Why? Why this particular miracle? The reason Matthew chose the story of the leper is because in it we see the entire story of the gospel. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus came to the ancient Jewish culture that was steeped in the stories and the laws of the Old Testament. That's who defined who they were, defined their identity. Their great prophet Isaiah once described the broken sinful condition of their ancestors in Israel as a diseased people with no cure. Chapter 1 says, why do you persist in your rebellion? Your head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundless, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. That's chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah uses the imagery of a leper's open sores to graphically illustrate the extent of Israel's sin. And they're like a diseased body. And because of that, and other places in the Old Testament that do the same thing, the Israelites came to believe that the disease of leprosy was therefore a judgment from God, a punishment for some kind of a terrible secret sin. And today we know this kind of leprosy is Hansen's disease, and you may be familiar with the tremendous advances in the treatment of leprosy that came about through the work of the Christian missionary Dr. Paul Brandt. But leprosy in Jesus' day was a mysterious, devastating disease that literally destroyed people in every way. Bible scholar R.C. Trench writes that though the leper was not worse or guiltier than his fellow countrymen, he was nevertheless a parable of sin, an outward visible sign of innermost spiritual corruption. The ancient Jewish Talmud listed 61 different things that could make a person religiously unclean. Leprosy was number two, second only to having contact with a dead body. That level of uncleanness meant that, they were, that, that when a leper's disease could no longer be hidden, they were cut off from their family, isolated from friends and community. One ancient rabbi wrote, I would not so much as buy an egg from a market on a street where a leper had once walked down. Another wrote, if I see lepers coming, I throw stones at them until they turn and run in the opposite direction. This harsh and cruel treatment was thought to be justified because people believed lepers were under God's curse, suffering the consequences of some heinous sin. Lepers were forced to live in isolation and in, in, in colonies. 
whatever world the, the leper knew, he had to leave it behind. Wives and husbands, children, friends, job. It was, it was all gone, and they were banished to the leper colony. And there were strict rules about what the leper's interaction could be with clean people. The law required that whenever a leper walked down the, the street, he or she had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that the people could move out of the way and not risk infection. If they didn't, it could result in immediate death by stoning. People took leprosy seriously. Well, this leper ignores all the rules, runs straight up to Jesus, right in the middle of the crowd, this post-Sermon on the Route crowd. And I tell you what, they parted like the Red Sea when they saw him coming. They knew what he was. They'd seen it before, the putrefied, decaying flesh, the bright white patches, oozing sores, rags wrapped around his decaying hands and feet. Leprosy is a chronic bacterial infection that deadens the nerves, deadens the body's early warning system. It's like an anesthetic so that the person doesn't know when something's gone wrong. A leper might put a hand in the fire and not react, get a cut or an infected sore and not know it. In the leper colonies, parasites might infest their skin and rats might even gnaw on them at night and they wouldn't feel it. Lepers begin to develop sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply and their disfigurement just becomes very intense. Dr. Brandt called it a painless hell. Lepers in Jesus' day would become grossly disfigured in appearance as their skin became hard and scaly, as their fingers and toes literally fell off. It's written that their faces became lion-like, swollen with huge folds of, of flesh. Inevitably, the person's nose would totally rot away. There was also a strong odor that would emanate from the body. We're told that a leper could be smelled 100 feet away. Leprosy would even attack the larynx so that the leper would develop a hoarse, rasping voice. And with that voice, the leper comes and worships Jesus in verse 1. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came, knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The Greek word used there means more than that he just knelt down on his knees before Jesus. It means to fall prostrate to kiss the ground. It's what Persians and Greeks did in the presence of their king. Prostrate themselves flat on the ground to kiss their king's feet. That's what this leper did. And so he didn't doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, God's king. He didn't doubt Jesus' ability or power, not one bit. But he did doubt Jesus' willingness to cleanse him. Would you be willing to touch me? I'm so disgusting. One thing I noticed is that there was only one leper who came to Jesus here. He left a whole colony of lepers behind, made his way to Jesus. Well, where are all the others? Many who were just like him decided not to come to the Savior. I guess believing that Jesus wouldn't care about them. Maybe they believed what everyone said about them, that they were cursed by God, forever rejected, that there was some deep disobedience to God in their lives that, that disqualified them from from any hope of God's mercy. And yet what we see from Jesus is perhaps one of the most tender moments recorded in all of Scripture. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Before he said a word, Jesus touched him. Do you feel the impact of that? Jesus didn't need to touch the leper to heal him. He, he did plenty of other miracles in the Gospels where he healed from a distance. He doesn't have to physically touch the person. 
He doesn't have to touch the leper. He chose to. This disfigured, disgusting, repulsive human being with oozing sores and a serious stench. And Jesus places his hands on him. He probably hasn't been touched by another human being in years. So great was his isolation. His disintegration had gone too far so that the leper couldn't even imagine a world where Jesus would be willing to touch him. But Jesus wanted to, was determined to, was delighted to. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion and stretched out his hand. Filled with compassion. This is not just a mind-to-mind or body-to-body thing. This is gut-to-gut. This is visceral emotion for Jesus. Have you ever wished you could take away somebody else's suffering? I think parents know this feeling when you see your child sick or in pain. You wish it were you instead of them. That's how Jesus felt towards this desperate man. And so Jesus grabbed him. And imagine what that felt like, like grabbing onto someone who's hanging over a cliff, looking him in the eye saying, I will not let you fall. I won't let you go. Like an electric shock, the love of God sparked through this man's body and he was healed. Kent Hughes puts it this way. The healing was sudden and complete. His feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs were suddenly whole, bursting his shrunken sandals. The knobs of his hands grew fingers before his very eyes. Back came his hair, his eyebrows, eyelashes. Under his hair were ears and before his face a nose. His skin was supple and soft. Can you hear the thundering roar from the multitude? Can you hear the man crying out, not unclean, unclean, but I'm clean, I'm clean. What a moment. And there was horror in the eyes of everyone else. Jesus exposed to leprosy, possibly infected. Touching a leper was an invitation to judgment, to being cast out, to being ostracized. Even the disciples probably cringed in horror. Jesus, you just knocked it out of the park with that sermon. We got the crowds eating out of our hands. Why, why would you do this? Because he loves. Because he loves even the leper. Does it shock you to know that this is exactly how Jesus feels about you? This is the story of the gospel. The self-existing supreme being visiting this planet that he created out of his own free will, born of a virgin, subjected to all the difficulties of living in this world so that he could touch a leper and bring healing to him body and soul. Can you connect the dots across the centuries to see the hand of Jesus touching you? That this story is true for all of us? Some folks look at this miracle and turn it into a little chicken soup for the soul. You know, it means we're supposed to be nice to outsiders, be nice to AIDS patients or people who are rejected by society, and that's partially true, but that's not why Matthew wrote it down for humanity. The leper is every man. The leper is every woman. The leper is all of us, cut off from God, disfigured by sin, broken by the evil of this world. We all have our own form of leprosy. In many ways, this leper is an illustration of what needs to take place in our lives, because we believe in Christ, but we doubt his willingness to touch us. We believe in his power, but we're not sure that any of that really applies to our personal situation, that he cares personally about us. Now, we can prostrate ourselves before Christ and pray, if you're willing, heal my body, my marriage, my mind, my situation. Would you, would you rescue me from my 
horrible circumstances. Deliver me from my addiction. Break this power of this habit that enslaves me. It is appropriate to ask yourself, what is your personal leprosy? It's probably something that's difficult to talk about. A place in our lives where we know Christ can help, but we doubt that he will. Let me assure you, Jesus is not shocked by the worst that we can bring to him. He knows it all, and he embraces. Jesus is not repulsed by your sin. No, he's willing, as willing to touch the leper as he is willing to touch you. Don't ever say, well, if I can just get treatment or get my act together, then I can get right with God. Get my life right, then allow Jesus to come near to me. Get my leprosy under control. Find a clean space, and then Jesus can touch me. You'll never get it together enough. And don't ever think, you know, I've gone too far. The disease is too advanced. The the damage is too severe. Christ's love isn't based on how lovable we are, but on how love-able he is. If you come to him, Jesus is going to do something. The the final word from this miracle is that Jesus sends the man off to the local priest to go through the cleansing ceremony described in Leviticus 14. This was necessary so that the man could be officially welcomed back into the community. This this ceremony had been on the books for 1,500 years. How many people ever used it? Zero as far as we know in Scripture. And as part of this ritual, a live bird is set free. Isn't that a beautiful image? Gently tossed into the air, flaps its wings, soars off into the sky. That's what it was like for this man. He now cries, I'm clean. And becomes a living, breathing advertisement for the fact that Jesus has cleansed. To be healed from leprosy was like being brought back from the dead. It was a picture of salvation. Folks, your being saved isn't just about you going to heaven. It's also about the opportunity to live a different life to live a thankful life, giving glory to God for his mercy and grace. Live in that mercy this week. Let Jesus touch the deepest wounds and sores in your heart. Let him bring healing to your wounded self. Let your life be an announcement to the world that the king has come and he has the power to make things right. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can be that leper, prostrate before you, feel your hands lifting us up, embracing us, welcoming us, and also healing us at the same time. Thank you that you are willing, that we can come to you with our deepest needs and know that you care. Thank you that you are moved with compassion for each one of us. May we live in gratitude for that this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.